Amen. All right, so we've been talking about our, our vision statement, and uh, today I want to focus in on our second part of it, discovering answers. Uh, we um, look at it and we go, it's walking together, discovering answers, finding hope in Jesus. And, and I hope that uh, as we say this over and over again, that you'll be able to say it with uh, uh, conviction Maybe you'll be speaking to somebody in a store or a restaurant server or something and just in a conversation and somebody might say, well, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm really going through a rough time or whatever. And you could say something like, well, you know, where we go to church, we believe that we walk together. How can I, how can I pray with you? And, and we, we work at discovering answers to life's difficult questions and, and we we're finding hope in Jesus, and I'd like to, you know, so you just use this as a way of introducing a conversation with somebody that needs to hear it. And so that's part of the aspect of this vision is that it, it helps guide you in a conversation with people as well as us as a church and the things that we're doing. The things that, that Nicole and, and Brian mentioned just a minute ago, these, this is a part of what we're doing. We're walking together. We're going we're gonna to party, but we want to bring people together, right? And uh, we want to also uh, engage them in dialogue and conversation. We want to help share answers that uh, help them in discovering what the Bible has to say about life and how to live it, and then ultimately to find hope in Jesus. And so that's what this is about. And uh, today, as I said, we're going to focus in on the discovering answers. But I would like us to just look at this again, walking together. What, we, what do we mean? We invest ourselves with people in all stages of life. That means young and old, working and not working, male and female, students, whatever it is. And we do this in order to support and experience life together. And as we studied last time, our verses do not merely look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Today, discovering answers, we have confidence that through Jesus, things will, oh, that's finding hope, excuse me, we will have, uh, things will get better regardless of whatever may come next, both in this life and the life to come. And the verse for that is, in God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth and a living hope. The hope is living because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Did you know that? You know, we're not serving an ideal uh, we don't gather together for a concept. We rally around a person who is alive, and his name is Jesus. And so uh, we are going to be talking about discovering answers today. And and I, you notice on the screen, learning usually passes through three phases. I want you to say them with me. Number one, in the beginning, you learn the right answers. Number two, in the second stage you learn the right answers. In the third stage, you learn which questions are worth asking. I think that's really good. One of the professors I had at graduate school said that the best time to teach people is when they need to know. If any of you have ever tried to teach your children or if you've been a teacher at school or in some kind of a group or setting or whatever, don't you find that the people who really recognize they need the answer are easier to teach? And don't you find that if you're the teacher, you learn better because you know you need the answer if you're going to teach it? And so learning and 
even discipleship is a need-to-know kind of thing. And uh, so oftentimes we could take the uh, issues of life and use them as a means by which we can help people understand what God has to say to it. Oops. Uh, One of the cultural factors that we've identified here in the Magic Valley is that there is a religious, spiritual climate in which it makes people less receptive to the truth. I want you to think about that. The spirit of religion is the most dangerous and difficult obstacle of the Christian faith. The religious spirit is bound up in human pride, fueled by wicked spiritual forces in order to hold people captive to false ideas and beliefs that prevent them from truly knowing God and being delivered from sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The late Karl Marx, and he was the author of the Communist Manifesto, which still dominates the institutions of higher learning in the United States of all places. But he stated, religion is the opium of the people. Some people, especially Christians, might think that that's offensive, but he was exactly right. He rejected religion for that reason. He didn't understand who Jesus was. He didn't understand the liberty of Christ. He wouldn't have... have, written the Communist Manifesto, a humanistic way of trying to bring a utopia on the earth and trying to right wrongs and make things equitable. He would never have understood, ever done that if he'd understood who Jesus is. But all he saw was the religion that was suffocating people and people being dominated by religious leaders and religious institutions and holding them captive to control them, to profit by them. And this is the spirit in which we live even in the Magic Valley. And it makes it difficult, doesn't it, to talk to people about Jesus sometimes because people think they already know the answer. We have to pray through that. The Bible tells us, Paul writing to Timothy says, Realize this, that in the last days difficult things will come, or difficult times. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, a religious spirit, although they have denied its power. They don't understand where the real power of God is. And Paul says, avoid such as these. Now, when he says avoid, he says, don't let it get into the church. Okay, he's not saying we don't talk to people about Christ. All right? But we need to avoid this spirit in ourselves and in the church. One of the things that God spoke to most harshly about uh, was to his own people was through the book of Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah's day, people were using the religion of Judaism to cover their own wickedness. 
In Isaiah 29, it says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me. And their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. See, even in the day of Israel, the, there were people that were, oh, they go to God and they try to say the right things because they wanted God to bless their lives, but then they go off and they do whatever they pleased. And God said, I hate that. We have the Apostle Paul's testimony. You know, he was a Pharisee. How many of you know what a Pharisee was? Okay. A Pharisee was a man who, or a person who followed the strictest interpretation of the Bible of their day. They, they had rules and regulations upon rules upon rules. They had rules on how to do the rules, <laughs> if you will. And he says this, he said, when he was speaking to the Philippians in chapter 3, he said, I, I have confidence, if, if you want to put confidence in your own ability, in your own flesh. He says, uh, you know, I can do that. He said, if anyone has a mind to, to do that, I form far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, followed that rule, and of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the faithful tribes that stayed true to God the longest. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. If you, you could go down the law, he could tick them all off. Yep, did that, did that, yep, did that. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view. Now listen. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. He said all that other stuff was just a waste of time compared to knowing the one who gave the law. I've suffered the loss of all things, he continues. He lost his position. He lost his status in Israel. He was now a hunted man. On the run, there were fellow countrymen that were had vowed to kill him. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things, but I count them as rubbish. And that is a nice word in the English, but it literally means sewage. I count it as sewage so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, Paul thought he had all the answers. When he was the religious man, when he was the Pharisee, he had all the answers. He had a religious spirit. But that religious spirit was so compelling and controlling of his life, he was putting believers to death. He was killing people in the name of God. 
There was only one way God could stop him. He had to knock him off his horse. And then he realized, well, there's something wrong here. (laughs) And it changed his life. And there are many people that are like this. Maybe not as extreme, but just as stubborn and full of pride. It takes God's work to break this resistance down. And that's why we pray for God to reveal himself to people. He doesn't change their hearts, but he can and does bring people to a need to know. He will work circumstances in people's lives that are oftentimes brutal to watch. But they need it, so they come to a place of needing to know. As long as life is smooth for them, and as long as life is working, and as long as there's always something that's bailing them out of the issues, then they never are moved to a place where they need to know. But when we pray, God can move them to that place. Sometimes it's through family turmoil, loss of jobs, the feeling of emptiness or loneliness, being used or abused or being self-confident and suddenly having everything you pinned on your, your, pinned your hopes on come crushing down. There's disappointment and disillusionment. And all these things can be God's providential means by which to awaken a person to the fact that things are just not right. And God moves to convict people that... Their own righteousness is insufficient, and obviously some people realize that they are sinners. Perhaps some have been living immorally or practicing lies and deceit and stealing or using people, but there are others like Saul who are so busy in religious meetings and activities that they don't see themselves as being in need of God. But God in his grace brings the awareness that these things are never enough. There's no peace. There is no confidence that one has done enough. There is a nagging understanding deep down that something just isn't right. And that's God wooing the sinner who doesn't even think that they are a sinner. So that they need something, or more accurately, they really need someone else. And God brings us to a place of recognizing that we have not come to God on his terms, but that we in our arrogance or our ignorance have approached faith completely wrong and that we, in fact, are guilty and unworthy. Consider Isaiah the prophet. When he was in a vision, he says in chapter 6, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. It sounds like Revelation, right? And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke And then I said, this is Isaiah now. He's a priest in Israel. He's been faithful to God. He's been holding the line. He's been doing everything right. This Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And when he recognized that, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You see, we'll never come to the fullness of, of forgiveness in relationship with God till we recognize who we are without Him and who He is and until we trust Him. Until in our own brokenness for what we have become and we surrender ourselves to Him, then there's cleansing and freedom. So how do we confront these kind of things in our own life? Well, first of all, we... We need to walk together. We need to discover these answers and we find hope in Jesus. And to do that, we start with ourselves. Do you really know for certain that you've received the Holy Spirit and have been born again? Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless... Indeed, you fail the test. See, the spirit of religion is external. The spirit of religion puffs us up into thinking we're okay by what we do, that we're good people, we're better than most. Some of us may have the audacity to say, I'm better than the rest. But not so. With Christ, we come on our face before him, Woe is me, for I am undone. And then when we have sufficiently put our trust in him, the Spirit of God comes in and we know then we are forgiven. Not guessing at it, not hoping at it, not wishful thinking, but the knowledge, I've been born again. There's something new in me, a person who's dwelling in me, and that is Christ. And then we've got to walk the walk. <laughs> in other words, if you know that you're disobeying God in anything that he's revealed, we need to repent and confess it and stop doing it or seek help. You know, there was a man that was praying one time with his pastor. He was at the altar, and the man prayed this prayer, and the pastor had heard him pray this a bunch of times. He said, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. And just as the pastor I heard him say that. Then the pastor said, Lord, kill the spider. (laughs) Many times we ask God to forgive our sins, but we won't deal with the source of temptation. Thirdly, we need to walk honestly with others who know Jesus and are not afraid to admit that they're dependent on him. We're dependent on one another for life. James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins one to another. Say, well, I thought we were only supposed to confess to God. You know, it doesn't hurt to be honest with each other and say, I'm really struggling with this. And pray for each other that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, it says. How? Because we're being honest. And in that transparency and humility, God is free to move and work. You know, there was a little boy that said, Dad, did Grandpa make you go to Sunday school when you were my age? 
And his father said, well, he sure did. We went every Sunday. To which the boy sadly said, well, I bet it won't do me any good either. It's not enough just to go to church. As Wayne said, we need to read our Bible, but we need to apply it. We need to trust God. We need to humble ourselves and obey him. And you know, here's the cool thing about it. When you have the Holy Spirit in you, he gives you the power to do it. You say, well, I've tried and tried. Well, you may have tried and tried, and you're going to fail and fail. But when you turn yourself over and say, Lord, I can't do this. It's impossible. I'm going to trust you to make the changes in me, and I'm just going to do my best to yield to you, but may your spirit transform me, and may you give me grace when I'm facing those temptations that I lean on you, and and you'll give me the strength to do the right thing. That's what we have. Being a Christian isn't about our sins in the past forgiven. Being a Christian is about the Holy Spirit living in us today and producing in us his life. And in in so doing, we give testimony to others that we're discovering the answers to the right questions, not only in the Scriptures, but in our relationship with Jesus. Heavenly Father, may you lead us in these truths and in this vision. Lord, may it not just be slogans and things that we say in our church, but may this be the way we live, that we are walking together, we're hopeful together, we are confessing together, we are praying for each other, we're touching the lives of others outside the church, we are loving on them, that we're expressing the answers and finding the answers because we have a need to know, we need to know. And ultimately finding hope in Jesus that we can share with other people. And I pray God that if there's someone here today that yet needs to to believe. Maybe today they realize they've had the spirit of religion. They've been going through the motions. They've been talking the talk, but they have been powerless to walk the walk. But they need to come to Jesus today and that you give them grace and faith to do so. And if that's you today, reach up to God right now in faith and say, God, I'm done trying on my own. But I believe Jesus died and rose again from the dead, and I'm asking you to come in and put your spirit in me and change me. And whatever things you tell me are wrong, I will bring before you and repent. That you might produce in me the righteousness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.